Good evening, everybody. Um, You may have noticed in our passage tonight that it has at its central image this idea of the approved workman. I'm going to read to you verse 15 again because it has that image in it. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So let's think together about this idea of the workman. I'll ask you a question. What is a workman without his tools? In most cases, he's just a man. Without his tools, he doesn't get any work done. Now, I like to think of myself as reasonably handy. I like to try and put my hand at fixing things myself rather than go to the shop to get it done. And I'll open it up and take all the small parts out until I get to a point where I realize, A, I don't have the skills to go any further, or B, I just don't have the right tools. So usually what happens, I end up going sheepishly to the shop with some half-open circuitry to get them to fix it for me. I'm no workman because I don't get the work done. Call it skills, call it tools. I lack them, and as a result, um, I don't get that approved finish, that approved standard of finish that I would need. In our passage, Paul instructs Timothy to be workmanlike, not to be ashamed and sheepish of his work, but one who correctly handles the word of, proof, of truth so to achieve that approved status. So that's the image that Timothy has to live up to. And in this series that we've called Pass It On, that is the image that gets passed on generation to generation until it reaches us now today. People who are concerned with the spread of the gospel, that is the image we live up to the workman approved correctly handling the word of truth. We make no apology at Kirkpatrick that the word of truth, the Bible, is at the center of what we do and it dictates all our decisions. So if we're going to elevate it to that level of importance, then it's essential that we handle it correctly. However, the Bible is a difficult book. It's not the easiest one for us to handle different writers, different genres, it's a different history, there's different languages involved. All of a sudden we feel like we might need somebody to do the work for us. A minister on a Sunday, a good book or a study guide. Now of course these are all great things and we're very blessed to have them. But how do we get around that idea that we are called to be workmen, to handle the truth ourselves? We're not just hiring in that big burly laborer, Christoph, to do it for us, but sharing in the speed work ourselves. I guess that's been a little bit of our design for Sunday nights together. We've had, yes, we've had someone at the front explaining, but what we've tried to do is open it out into groups so that you can share in that speed work and join in with it yourselves. So what's been implied before by what we've done, I want to make very sort of explicit tonight because it seems to relate to what we've just read in this passage. Everyone in any sort of gospel leadership, that's anyone concerned with the spread of the gospel, is called to be a workman. And tonight we want to try and begin to help you put that into practice by looking at this passage in 2 Timothy together, we've just read, and try and work on it together. Now we might feel a little bit overwhelmed. We might be like me with my circuitry open, not knowing where to do. I don't have the tools, I don't have the skills. We're going to try and help you with that tonight. We want to try and put some tools in the toolbox so that you can approach the Bible with confidence 
and understand it for yourselves. So our first tool that we want to look at tonight is called the Stating the Obvious Tool. Now, when it comes to Bible discussion or it's, it's a Bible study, it's that first question of the night. It's the easy one to sort of get everybody going, yet there's that long, long, awkward silence as nobody wants to, nobody wants to answer it. I don't really know why we're afraid of stating the obvious. Maybe we don't like to patronize other people try or elevate ourselves with something so simple. But I also think we miss the obvious a lot of the time. Maybe because we're used to hearing such good biblical teaching, we, we want to run straight to the knock-your-socks-off application and don't see the plain, obvious reading that's sitting right in front of us. I've actually found people who are new to church and reading the Bible can be actually better at this. They don't have that maybe baggage or culture attached, and they can come to the Bible fresh and see some of the plain truths so clearly that we can, we can miss. There's a phrase that the Scottish preacher Alistair Begg uses that I find very helpful in my own Bible study, and I like to remember it. It's that the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. It's quite a memorable little phrase, but what it really means is the Bible isn't this mysterious code book. The main point is probably visible within the plain sense and reading of the text. However, the Bible is a deep book, and with deeper reading, we can add color and nuance and bring life, more life, to what that plain, simple reading shows us. But notice we need to start with that stating the obvious. So I want to pass that over to you now. Um, We've done this before in groups, so just where you're sitting in groups of about five or six, just turn around to each other and have a go at stating the obvious. So if we can get the next slide up. Just look at the passage that we've just read together. First of all, think what are your first impressions, and then just look for the obvious commands and imperatives. What's Timothy to do? What's Timothy not to do? Don't any of the imagery leave that completely. There's some tricky stuff there. So just go, what's the obvious thing? And don't be afraid or embarrassed to say the obvious things in front of people. So I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that now. Okay, I'd love to hear back from some of you now with some really obvious statements Um, anything too complicated, it'll just be rejected. So nice and obvious. Um, Christoph's going to take the mic around. Um, So maybe just things about what Timothy's to do and what not to do. That'll be probably the easiest way. Or if there's anything else that's just really obvious, you can share that. Just stick a hand up. Avoid godless chatter. Great. Thank you very much. Timothy is to avoid godless chatter. Nice and obvious. Anything else obvious? Um, don't get into quarrels and warn people about quarrelling. Great. One more. They have to keep reminding of all the previous things, which are the, the truths from um, verses 11 down to 13. Brilliant. That's a good spot, actually. Maybe that wasn't even obvious for everyone, but that's a great spot. Um, I think I was right in saying that people hate stating the obvious. Um, I think that's been proved right. But um, I think we're, we're, we've begun, I heard, overheard like what some of you were saying, and we're beginning to get towards what the main instructions are. Um, we've got a good sense that Timothy is told not to be involved in quarreling or, or like any of this foolish chatter. Um, but there's also a few other things about 
positive things he's supposed to do. He's supposed to teach, correctly handle the truth, but he's also supposed to do that with gentleness and kindness. So if we left here tonight and all we'd picked up was that we're not to get into foolish arguments and that we're to not be quarrelsome and arrogant and instead we're supposed to be gentle and patient, I think we'll have had a pretty good night here together if that's all we came away with. But yet as we use more tools and look deeper at this simple reading of the text, we can become more convinced of that. We can make that become more alive, more nuanced, more coloured, and more convincing to ourselves. So let's introduce our next tool, which is called the context tool. Now, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> now, what that... Um, I'm full of these lovely phrases tonight. What um, that phrase means, it actually speaks quite a good truth. It's saying that it, when a Bible passage is just removed from its context, you can wield it to prove whatever you want. We need the context to root it to what its actual meaning is. I had a Christian friend who recently said to me, sure, you can just make the Bible mean whatever you want it to. And as such, it means he ignores some of the plain teaching of the Bible. But the reason he's came to that conclusion is because he's experienced the Bible taken out of context so often people using it to wield it for their own personal hobby horses. But we need context to root it within its true meaning. It keeps us on track. Now, there's many different types of context we can think of. I want to mention two tonight, and we'll focus on one. The first type is like a historical context, or essentially, what's the story here? We've actually done quite a bit of that already with 2 Timothy. We've looked, okay, who was Paul writing to, to Timothy in Ephesus? What was the situation there? There was false teachers. Um, there were people embarrassed about Paul. It was near the end of Paul's life. We've been able to use a lot of that context to understand what exactly is Paul speaking into. You can even see some of that historical context in our passage when they talk about the false teachers and what they were teaching. I think we've, been, we've, done, we've done quite well on that one in, the, in, in previous weeks. Another type of context I want to introduce to you, and well, this will be our main focus for this section, is, called, is the literary context. So the literary context is where it comes in the book. So we can have verses, but verses come within paragraphs. And paragraphs come within chapters, and chapters form a book. And it all makes a flow of thought. Now, if you isolate a verse you can isolate it and make it mean whatever. Or you could even isolate a paragraph and change the meaning. So the context relates to what's either side of it. So the tool I want to share with you is something called the bookends tool. So like physical bookends that stand either side of a text to support it and hold it up. What a literary bookend is, is the parts of the passage either side of what we're looking at that support it and hold it up and share with us the context that which we're looking at. Um, this may be a little bit vague, but I, I want to give you a chance to practice this. So again, we're going to go into groups. I want you to look at the verses at the very beginning of the passage and the verses at the very end of the passage and see what frame they make to see if that can add something to the meaning. So if we get up our next slide, <coughs> excuse me. If you read the first part of verse 14... And it links back to verse 10. We've already had a reminder of that. That's been very helpful. If you then read 
verses 25b to 26, and then think together, how does what they say, what these bookends say, what is the framework that our passage and our commands are to be understood within? And I'll, I'll let you have a work at that, and then we'll work through that together in a couple of minutes. Okay, things have gone a little bit quiet there, so I think you must have got to the end of that section. Um, maybe not all the groups. Um, maybe to, yeah, we'll take a little bit of quick feedback. Um, what's, what's appeared by looking at the bookends? What, what sort of framework have we seen there? I think what struck me, Christopher, at the start was just that, sorry, Richard, <laughs> the sense that he's talking in verse 10 about the elect. He's not talking about folks who haven't received the truth. And then at the very end of the passage that they're being trapped by the devil. So I, I think there's just something there in terms of caution for those of us who believe not to get distracted by false teaching. So that's coming across. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, um, I, I agree with what you've picked up on that thing about the elect. And I'll add into that that they may too, in verse 10, they may too obtain the salvation. So it's about those who are elect obtaining their salvation. That's what Paul's working towards. And then at the end of the passage, we see that what Paul, that work towards is for to help those escape the trap of the devil, to be saved from the trap of the devil. Um, so I guess, um, I think I see a few nods and stuff going around. That's, the framework is one of salvation. Um, did your group, I think your group was having a discussion, Christoph, is there anything you want to add? We noticed, Richard, if you just read from um, 14a, uh, the bookend that you pointed out at the start of the passage, keep reminding them of these things, and then just slip into 25 part B. It would read quite well. Keep reminding them of these things in the hope that God will grant them repentance. So in a sense, the the argument from the start of the passage and, and the end of the passage um, are, are one. Uh, so we find that quite quite convincing. The, the detail is in the middle, but the, the sentence is in the bookends, the, the idea. Yeah. That's essentially the point I wanted to make from this. We've got this framework either side, which is concerned with the salvation of others. It's about making sure the elect obtain their salvation of those being able to escape the devil's trap. And then we've got this detail in the middle, which must serve that purpose. Now, at first reading, that's maybe not all that obvious, that those instructions to not be quarrelsome and to, to teach well were all about the salvation of others. But by using this bookend tool, it's helped to make that more obvious. We see the framework we must understand this within. And it's a pretty important framework, isn't it? The salvation of others. It starts to help us have a better focus on what the main message of this passage is. So we'll go on to our final tool for this evening, and that's the imagery tool. Now, we see in this passage that Paul uses two main images. He's got the one with the workman, which we've talked a little bit about already. But there's also this confusing one in the middle about these images in the house, or, or the articles in the house. Now, if I was to ask you next week, what was the passage you looked at last week um, on Sunday night? If you did remember, the thing you'd likely remember would be 
oh, there's the workman and there was the, the articles in the house. And that's because images are themselves very memorable. We'd remember the image first and then we'd say, oh yes, and then the concept this. It would help us stimulate our memory. But also images are really helpful because they stir creativity within us. We look at them, they help us see it from a different angle. They help us apply it. It's, they're sort of more earthy. That's why images are good. In other ways, images can be quite difficult because images are inherently vague. They're open to many interpretations. If you go and walk around an art gallery and you look at a painting, people will say they see different things and different meanings and no one will ever agree. They're, how, who represents who or how far do we push an analogy? A good example of this comes from my boyhood hero, Eric the King Cantona. In 1995, after he kung fu kicked a Crystal Palace supporter, he's a good hero to have, um, he gave this now legendary press conference statement. He said this, When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. Thank you very much. Now, as Cantona left the room, the press box were just left scratching their heads. Who are the seagulls? Why are these trawlers throwing fish in the sea? Eric, are you a sardine? Some people offered all these different, weird and far-fetched explanations, but who was to say who was right or wrong? There was no interpretation of, interpretation of the analogy. You see, that's the key. Any image needs to be governed by an interpretation. Philosophers become famous for their little stories or thought experiments, but the difference between a famous philosopher and Eric Cantona is that famous philosophers produce 1,000-page books to explain and govern the analogies within their stories. Now, the two images in this passage can be tricky, and especially the second one was said. But Paul doesn't leave us without an interpretation for them. He gives it to us in the surrounding verses. And that's what we must seek out. So for the final time, we'll get back into groups again. I want to look at, first of all, if you have a look at... Yeah, Verse 20, just look at the image, see what's being described, see what it is and have a wee think about what it could be. And then go on and use verses 19 and especially 21 to 23 and see if you can try to make sense of this image. Um, it's not easy, but have a go. Great, I'll, I'll interrupt you there. Um, I know that's been quite short, uh, having a look at that. Um, Maybe you didn't quite get a handle on it, but any initial thoughts or things that you think you've came up with um, about looking at this image, but then also then seeing, okay, what's the interpretation trying to say? It's given Sam the answers before this evening. In the staff team, there's been a... This, this is all coming from our group, actually. Um, we, we, didn't get, we didn't quite get the whole way, but we were saying, okay, so there's this, there's this house... Um, and you've got some posh things in the house, and then you've got some sort of more normal things in the house, a bit like your fine china tea set versus your mugs, something like that. Um, and you use your china tea set for the good purposes, the big purposes, and the mugs every day, whatever. Um, so we looked at that and thought, okay, great, that's verse 20. And then we said, right, we don't really understand now how verse 20, watch what verse 21 is doing. But we kind of just at the end there, we're we're kind of saying, it seems like Paul's saying you need to cleanse yourself from these ignoble, ordinary purposes, um, which we thought maybe was quarreling. 
Um, and then we thought um, we weren't yet, yeah, and that we weren't really quite sure what we were meant to be doing instead. But that's how far we got. Great. I hope that's been helpful. Um, is there anything any other groups or anybody wants to add on? I think we recognised we were getting a wee bit uh, coloured by our thinking because of the, the Lord's parable, uh, you know, about the, the potter and the clay and being able to make things for good use and for ignoble use. And we were always encouraged to, you know, take the lower station. And yet here was a, almost the same um, imagery, but being used in a very, very different way. So it's actually hard to get your head around it. Yeah. Actually, the feedback from both of you has been very helpful. Thanks, Christoph. That'll... And the feedback from both of you has been very helpful because what it showed is that when we look at an image, we get all these ideas in our head. There's different things come to us. You know, we think of Jesus and the potter. We think, okay, yeah, it must mean this, the posh things, the, the not-so-posh things. But then we see the interpretation, and the interpretation is actually talking about something quite different. I think actually if we focus more on the interpretation, um, I'm sorry I had to cut your time short uh, on this just with time. We couldn't spend longer. I spent a lot longer thinking about this verse during the week. Um, this is sort of a simple sort of, as I could sort of think the, Im the image was pointing to. If we want to be useful in our service to God, if we want to be able to use for noble purposes for him, We've got to cleanse ourselves, or as verse 19 says, get rid of all that wickedness. And I think that wickedness is what the rest of the passage is referring to as the, the quarrelsome, the, you know, the, the arguing about words. If we want to be useful to God, we've got to get rid of that sort of thing. If we've got that, we're not useful. And then we'll be like you know, the, the silver spoon at the top table. You're going to bring that out for everybody. You're wanting everybody to, to have the useful cutlery, for example. But if we hold on to our wickedness, like we hold on to that arrogance and pride that we have, and we don't cleanse ourselves from it, we're not going to be of any use for God. We're going to be like a dirty clay spoon. Nobody wants to use that. That's just going to be thrown in a drawer at the back somewhere, never to be taken out of no use at all. So I think this interpretation, it doesn't push the analogy too far. I think it's faithful to the verses that surround it. Now, it maybe doesn't answer every single detail that we drew out from the, from the image. You know, why is it a large house? Um, why is it wood and clay? Is there some significance to using wood and clay? But think we don't have to wonder about all these because the interpretation doesn't seem to. I think I overheard this group saying, what Paul's sort of giving, it's quite a broad image. It's actually quite simple. He's not wanting us to focus too much on those other details that we maybe get excited about. I think it's something we do when we look at images. We, we try and be too literalistic. We want to draw a straight line, a parallel between every single detail to something in us. But that's not often what the images are intended to do. And also, images aren't perfect. They can't stand up to that sort of thing. Um, I hope you see a sort of an element of the hard work that maybe has to go on. But hopefully this is a tool that gets you thinking in the right way. You see the image, so we look to the verses after it for an interpretation. We don't just run off on ourselves because we'll <laughs> get into trouble. Now, tonight we've looked at three tools very quickly. Um, but we've hopefully deepened and added some colour to that first stating the obvious impression of the passage that we had. 
Let me just remind you of the different elements that we've came up with so far. So stating the obvious showed us that Timothy is to avoid quarrels and fighting, and he's to teach with gentleness and kindness instead. Then the bookends gave us a context to hold this within. Like we're to be gentle and not get into arguments because it's for the sake of other people's salvation. If we're not gentle, if we're arrogant, that's somehow going to be detrimental for other people. And then the images gave us this picture of being workmanlike, of you know, working hard and honorably to teach God's word. And also for Timothy, if he wants to be useful to God in bringing people to salvation, he's got to cleanse himself of these ensaring sins like pride and arrogance. I think that's quite a strong message once we put those three elements together and think about our usefulness. What's our usefulness to God like? Are we letting these other things come in and affect our usefulness? I want to finish off this evening by asking three questions of ourselves from this passage. The first question is, why is it important to be a workman? So there's an urgency in Paul's message. There's some importance here. And we can see that in the context, the bookends and the the historical context that we've had a look at. It's a church in trouble. I was wondering what our context might be. Excuse me. Our bookends, if you like, might be this Pass It On series. That's what we're immediately in, what's immediately around us, where we're thinking, okay, if the gospel is to survive or in East Belfast, we need to look at these skills of how we pass it on, how we share God's word with others, and what that looks like in our day-to-day lives. And maybe our historical context, our, our big story, is that we're in a big city where thousands of people don't know Jesus. In a city where thousands of people are leaving church all the time to places where they, they won't hear God's voice anymore. We're in a city where thousands of people are under the grasp of Satan and they urgently need to be freed and receive salvation. See, that's quite intense. There's an urgency here when we understand our context. So we need to work hard into this context. And it's God's plan for us that we work hard at it, at explaining God's word and sharing that and passing it on properly. So being workmanlike is important because it's how God wants to work through us to reach his people. That's something for us to be completely humbled by, but also to praise God for, that he would want to choose us to be his workmen, to do his job. The second question I want to ask is, why is it important to be an approved workman? I think the approved workman is a reference to that usefulness talked about in the household images. To pass it on well, to be useful and one approved, we've got to cleanse ourselves from that wickedness. As we saw when we pieced the passage together, there's no room for resentment or arrogance or pride. We must get rid of those because they damage our hearers, as the passage tells us. Instead, our passing it on has got to be marked by kindness, gentleness, faith, love, and peace. I can recognize in myself at times when witnessing to friends that things can get a bit heated and intense, and it's not long before it turns into an argument. Who can win the argument 
rather than, can I convince this person of the beauty of Jesus? It's the youthful desires of arrogance and pride get in my way, and there's a, sometimes confrontation happens because of it. But this damages my hearers. People don't tend to change their minds after heated arguments. It tends to harden hearts more. I once observed an older Christian do something that I didn't understand at the time, but I've since come to realize he was acting out this passage. I had brought a friend along to it. It was a Q&A event uh, for, um, for people to ask questions about Christianity. And this friend was particularly, um, particularly aggressive. He came wanting to dominate and pretty much to ruin the event um, as he spoke out. And as he asked his questions, I was thinking, these are stupid questions. I'm thinking, this, this guy, he's good at answering questions. He'll be able to shoot him down straight away, win the argument, end a story. But he didn't do it like that. He affirmed the guy. He said, that's a good question. He wanted to find out more. He got to know the guy a bit more, asked a few more personal ones. He spoke with such kindness and gentleness. And then he let the other guy have the last say. After the meeting, he went over, shared a cup of tea with him, and just chatted, wanting to be his friend. That conversation had more impact on my friend than any other. Even though he was getting you know, these right answers bombarded at him in all the arguments we were having, you know, it took that gentleness and kindness for him to begin to see some of the simple truths. If we try and pass the gospel on with any arrogance or pride, or with confrontation or quarreling, we just ruin our hearers. We need to be gentle. I was thinking even, how do we pass the gospel on to children? That's a big application for a lot of us. We've got to ask ourselves, are we always doing this gently? It could be possible to present the gospel to children in quite a forceful or intimidating way. But this only ruins the hearers. See, presenting the truth clearly with gentleness and kindness is what's needed. And I think at the heart of all this is love. It's love for people who, who need to receive their salvation. If we love them, we'll see the urgency and want to share the truth. But we'll do it in a way that's loving, not in a way that loves to fight. The final question tonight is, would you describe yourself as workmanlike? There's no doubt that what we're called to do, it doesn't just come naturally to us. We're called to work and to work hard at it. In endeavouring to pass the gospel on to the next generation, we've got to be workmen in instructing and sharing the Bible. Now, this could be in preparing to teach a Sunday school class, but it can happen in other simpler ways too, in thinking, how am I going to tell the Bible story to my children or grandchildren tonight? at bedtime, or thinking, okay, my friend, they're in a really difficult situation. I wonder if the Bible's got anything to say about that that I can look up and find out about and share some of that with them. It could be in, after you've had a good quiet time and thought, that's a really powerful message God has shared with me. Is there someone that this could be useful for today? You see, in all of these, there is love for our hearers. And there's gentleness and kindness. But they all involve us working hard to correctly handle the word of truth.
and then to share it. I hope tonight, by practicing a few tools, you've learned even a tiny bit more about how to be confident in approaching a Bible passage. And don't worry if you haven't quite picked up what we're doing. These are things that we revisit again and again in these evening services to get more confident together in doing that work. But we want to be more confident so that we can pass it on with gentleness and kindness for the sake of others so that they can come to salvation in Jesus. Let me pray for us now.